Now that Mike has pushed the big red button, welcome back to the Music History Project. (laughs) Today we are talking about music and the civil rights movement in honor of February being Black History Month. So stick around. So it's really exciting to have an opportunity to uh, dig out some of the uh, oral history interview clips that talk about the impact that music had on the civil rights movement, particularly those uh, involving uh, the United States during the 1960s. And I uh, really want to just say a shout out to Elizabeth for taking the time to go through these interviews that we're going to hear today and pulling out some of these gems. Yeah, I'm really excited I got to do it because... Beyond our oral history web clips that you can see online, um, that's just a very f- small segment of our interviews. And then when I screen these, we give you guys a little more content than what you can view online. And But I'm the true keeper now because I got to hear it all and <laughs> I refuse to share. So <laughs> no, uh, in reality, we got a really good thematic episode going here and it's gonna be into kind of three major chunks that you're gonna be hearing today. And there's quite a crew of people. Um, Everybody from musicians who struggled with integrating into a um, into a scene that incorporated and embraced them because they were African American, and we also have a lot of very popular folk singers and songwriters that you're going to hear from um, that had the different the, another perspective. They were white musicians playing to support a cause they felt very strongly in. And it's just, it's a really good representation and a great way to showcase the collection. So kudos back to Dan for doing the work to get it all. So Kudos to all of us. Yes. Oh, you didn't do much, Mike. No, I, I'm kidding. I didn't do much on this one. I just <laughs> he, pressed the big red he button. He pushes the big red button and then he makes it sound great afterwards. So And that is nearly impossible. <laughs> so hats off. So the uh, first uh, clip that we're going to hear um, is from Billy Taylor. And I just wanted to mention... Um, As a reminder to those and maybe uh, an introduction to others that uh, Billy Taylor was a uh, really a jazz legend. He played jazz uh, throughout a very long career. He was born in uh, uh, North Carolina and started composing when he was 14 years old, uh, primarily playing uh, piano, but also uh, very skilled on just about every musical instrument. I actually saw a, a segment when he was a host of the uh, CBS morning program, Sunday morning, where he played, I think, 17 different instruments. It was quite amazing. Uh, he was born in 1921 and uh, passed away in 2010, to give you a perspective of his, uh, of his life. Um, and among the things that he wrote was a, uh, a song called I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, which um, was covered by Nina Simone very successfully in 1967. Uh, so he was a great contributor to uh, the civil rights movement as far as the music that he wrote. And a little uh, unknown fact that actually something that came out with uh, the interview that I did with him uh, was that he was the uh, musical director for um, Martin Luther King. And I think this is a great place for Elizabeth to pick it up and give us an introduction on the clip we're going to hear. 
Yeah, so as Dan mentioned, we're going to hear from Billy Taylor first, and he's going to be talking about uh, the status of music when he was a child, as well as growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, where there was a lot of division and strife and then struggle. Um, and one thing that I found interesting that, uh, unfortunately, you're not going to get to hear, but I got to hear, so secrets that I'm letting out of the vault now, uh, is that he talked about moving away from D.C., uh, shortly after the the time period he's talking about in his clip here and moving back down to the south for his father to take a job and they were only there for a couple of years before his mother who was a, a school teacher I believe um, decided that the kids weren't going to get the opportunities down there that it was so divided and so racially charged that she was fearful that the kids wouldn't get the, get the educational opportunities and quite frankly their safety was at risk so the family up and moved back to DC shortly after and they got to go uh, to college and enroll in college and everything like that as well so let's hear from Billy Taylor there was uh, 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 there were many programs on uh, uh, where people would tell you about what was going on in music at, at that day I remember uh, when I was a kid uh, uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff came to to play uh, actually in, in Washington, D.C., down in, in one of the places. Washington was a very segregated town, town, even though it was the capital of the United States. And so, but a friend of mine, uh, um, uh, father, was uh, 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 a janitor at one of the uh, uh, um, big halls, concert halls, downtown. And his, his uh, 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 he, so he came back talking about, he said, man, there's this, this wonderful pianist that, you know, said, we heard, we heard, heard about him. Someone had, had, had uh, we were in school, uh, he and I were in school, and we had heard about this from one of, one of our teachers who uh, uh, was talking about rock, uh, playing uh, some of Rachmaninoff's music and, 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 and literally played some for us and so forth. And so uh, my friend said, well, man, I heard him practicing, man. This is guy was, he was getting ready for the concert. Man, what, what, you know. I said, oh, yeah. And of course, uh, I, I, I rushed down uh, uh, to, to, to see if I could go to meet his father or something. But uh, I only heard a little, little, he was there. I guess he was there for a couple of days, several days. And, and uh, 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 so we were up in the balcony and where we couldn't be seen and, and we couldn't listen. So uh, that's, the, that's the only time I've, I've heard him, but I, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him. <laughs> Unbelievable, mm -hmm. yeah. What a good experience. It, it, well, it, it really uh, it put life to uh, uh, many other things that I had seen in the movies and that I was hearing on the radio, you know, because now here's a real live guy that, that is, is one of the world-known, well-known uh, world figures, and... Uh, then that made me listen to people who were also uh, well known and and were not getting that uh, because of their color were not getting the, that kind of attention, but they were being heard in all of the churches and in all of the places. So they were being heard. And I heard a lot of good classical music, good a lot of good jazz, and a lot of, uh, every everything, dance music, all kinds of stuff. So that was a uh, segment from our 2009 oral history interview with uh, Billy Taylor. And I really love the idea that we are dedicating this uh, podcast to um, to the civil rights movement and uh, in honor of Black History Month. And um, 
it's exciting to pull out some of these clips. It's going to get a little tough, I think, uh, coming up. We've got a couple of clips uh, that are maybe a little uncomfortable to hear about some of the struggles that uh, some of our, our friends uh, that we've interviewed had to go through uh, just because they came up in a, uh, a time where uh, African-American musicians and, and uh, uh, female African-American musicians weren't necessarily welcomed in all circles. Um, and I think that's a little bit about what we're going to hear from Buddy Collette. Yeah, so Buddy Collette's going to be talking about segregation, and I think we should just roll right in afterwards to hearing from Clora Bryant, um, trumpet, right? Yes. Oh, man, look at that. Pulled that. That was nice. Snagged that That one That knowledge. Yeah. You're amazing. (laughs) Everybody else listening is like, duh, trumpet. (laughs) So whatever. Um, She had a great album, by the way, called Gal with a Horn, which was sort of a takeoff from Boy with a Horn and then Man with a Horn. Uh, so she did the female version of it. And then she was very proud of the fact that she was sort of the female Louis Armstrong. She did a great imitation of Armstrong on the Ed Sullivan show, actually. Yeah, so we're going to hear first from Buddy Collette, and then we're going to hear from Clara Bryant about their experiences uh, being in the music industry and kind of some of their struggles and everything like that during that time period. We worked hard to try to make this town what it is now. It's much better. It's not, you know, perfect, but uh, at that time, the Academy Awards, all days, no blacks had been on stage other than Louis Armstrong and his band. And uh, the night that we pulled it off was the night when uh, Sidney Potier won for uh, Lilies of the Field, but we had threatened uh, more or less, which we did, pickets and everything the night. That night, they didn't picket, you know, the People from Core and Cope, they had all people lined up. We said, well, they hired three of us, three blacks in the band. Bill Green, you remember that name? Excellent player. Uh, Tony Robinson was a harpist and myself. So in the meantime, I'm sitting on the out like the audience. you the audience, and I'm sitting on this edge right for the audience. And part of that was part of so the camera guys could pan in on me and then go on stage. And one time the trombone player, Lloyd Elliott, was behind me. He pushed me down and I said, Man, were you mad at me or something? He said, no. He said, the, the, the guy with the feet on a little stand there almost knocked your head off. <laughs> they're looking at the stage and do what they're supposed to do, and they were worrying about me going over my head. And I said, I don't want to get hit here. So all these little stories you know, went on and all that stuff. Nobody made much noise about it, no paper stuff at the time. We pulled it off, but it was very quiet. It was all like man to mind, man. The guys all worked really. The players were great. They didn't want to lose a job over it, but in the meantime, once we got together, I said, it's going to help everybody. We'll get the same pay. Play the same on dues, work dues, and all that. When I was on Groucho, I paid less work dues because I was in a black union. They paid three fifty for the check that they got for about $130, and I paid two fifty. And the guys began to complain. said, how do you play? You know how guys are funny. If I'm getting cheaper, why am I getting it cheaper? I'm saying, because the unions are different. You guys got a big building. We got a little house. So, you know, there's a lot of little things that came up and it made sense to people. They said, let's work together. And it took like three years to get the message out. And I was a test case for a lot of it because as much as I talked it should happen, then all of a sudden Jerry Fielder from the Groucho Show, who did also the Life of Rally, picked me. He said, well, I'm going to hire you for this show. And they went in there, no rehearsal. But you know, all of a sudden I talked a lot, so can I back my, my words? But I was studying all the time, and you know, in the meantime, I'm fighting them, but I'm studying them. If in case it happens to me, I'll be ready. 
But it was exciting to do, you know, when you got a big challenge, you know, can you do it? And I said, yeah, if I work hard enough, I can do it. It wasn't a challenge as far as the audience was concerned, was it? No, because they didn't know that it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. they, I was experiencing it, you know. We, they resented me taking solos. They resented me just being there at first until they found out I was, I knew who I was. I knew what I was going to do. My dad had told me who I was. And he said, you can do anything you want to do, but you've got to know up here from the jump. And that's what I did. And, and when I came out here to Central Avenue, um, I would be the only female that would get up there and to the uh, jam sessions with Dexter Gordon and Water Gray and, and uh, Teddy Edwards and all those people, you know. I even challenged a trumpet player with, that took Cat Anderson's place with Duke Ellington. His name was Al, um, oh darn, I can't think of his name. I challenged him for the high notes. <laughs> yes, I did. It was written up in the paper. He let me make the last note, and I thanked him. <laughs> he said, "He said, Clara, one hand washes the other." That was his comment about it, you know. But it made me look good, you know. He took, right. he took low, and after that, hey, it was smooth sailing for me. I was playing in Pasadena at a place, and uh, at that time, I was playing drums and trumpet at the same time. You know, I was playing trumpet with this and drums with that, and. Uh, but this, on Sundays, I had a guy would come in and he'd sit in on a drum, so I was able to stand out front and play my trumpet. And there was a couple sitting right down front at the edge of the bandstand. And this woman was sat there and got jealous because her husband was looking at me like everybody else. Whoever was playing, that's who they looked at, you know? But I looked and this woman had a butcher knife. And her husband looked and said, because she was going to stand up and I'm standing right there. She's freaking to cut me, you know. <laughs> oh, and so her husband snatched her down, and then the the owner and the bouncer came over and put them out. But just that, just like that, you know, because I had my eyes closed and just happened the piano player said, "Look out, Clara!" And I opened this one was like this. Oh my God! She's supposed to stab me, isn't that something? Just for playing. Yes, yes. I said if they, they if she's that unsure about her husband, she shouldn't come out with him. You know what I mean? She shouldn't let him out of her sight, period. You know, I'm standing there minding my business trying to make a living, and she's going to cut me. Once again, that was Clara Bryant. Always good to hear from her. She had some, some great things to say about that. What's wonderful about her is that uh, she had a huge impact on the L.A. music scene in the 1950s and um, is actually in several books for her role of helping to promote the jazz scene in Los Angeles during that time. And I'm really proud of the fact that uh, there are still books uh, written that uh, include her contributions, which I think are fantastic. So next we're going to be hearing from Preston Epps. Dan, uh -huh. do you have some, I, I would imagine you have a slight bit of background I absolutely love this Epps. guy. Preston Epps is somebody I remember hearing about. He had a big hit in 1959, which, by the way, is way before my time, uh, called Bongo Rock, which I thought was just awesome that there's this this rock and roll um, groove going on, and then the, he just wails on the bongos. It kind of didn't even make sense in the song, but it was awesome. <laughs> he just kept wailing and wailing and wailing and wailing. Um, he was born in Oakland uh, in 1931, 
and had a uh, a military career for a long time and thought that he was just going to keep re-enlisting after uh, the Korean War, but had an opportunity to play some music. And before you know it, he had a record contract and that big hit, uh, Bongo Rock, happened. And it's neat is I had always heard the name and um, wanted to interview him. And it took about 10 years to finally find him. And since that time, we have become good friends. And I get to talk to him probably once or twice every month. Um, Preston is an amazing example of a passionate guy. And um, I was really delighted when Elizabeth found this little clip to play for our uh, civil rights uh, focused podcast today. What did you find? So Preston is going to be talking about segregation and music, what he kind of experienced and his impressions of it all. You had mentioned earlier about segregation. You lived right through that period of time where segregation yeah. and music had changed. Oh, yeah. What were well, your observations about I, that? I don't know. It didn't bother me that much. Like I said, I was born in Oklahoma. And, and well, as a kid, we didn't know nothing too much about segregation because I had some, some friend, white friends yeah, we slip off from home. We all played together in the hills. We, you know, young people didn't, growing up, I mean, they don't know nothing about segregation. Mm -hmm. their, their minds are not on it. They're taught it. And it's sad that they're taught segregation, you know? And uh, so, you know, I came through that era and like touring. <laughs> Ooh, man, let me tell you. <laughs> We, we, we slept on the bus, dressed on the bus, ate on the bus, everything was on the bus. And like traveling through the South, oh man, it was, it was rough. There was no places, hardly no places to get food or nothing. If we wanted food, we had to go to the back door, you know, to get it, you know. And I remember once we was on this bus and uh, we, nobody had eaten. And the bus driver stopped at a restaurant. Well, he could go in anywhere, because at that time, they didn't allow black drivers to drive in the state. It was all, you know, the whites had to drive in the state. And he went in. Well, here we all on the bus. There's about 30 of us. No food, <laughs> no nothing. So I said, man, I'm hungry. So I walked, I went in. Wasn't hardly nobody in the restaurant anyway. And I went in, and this girl, the waitress, ooh, boy. <laughs> when I walked through the front door, she started screaming, oh, black boy in here. <laughs> and, and so the manager came out, and he said, well, you can't be in here. I said, well, you ain't got nobody in here. He said, but you still can't be in here. He said, if you want something, you have to go to the back door. I said, well, okay. Well, by being born in Oklahoma, I knew, you know. So what I did, I went out and I told everybody on the bus, if you want something to eat, we can order, but we have to go to the back door to get it. A lot of them didn't want to do it, but I went on back there and I said, if y'all want something, let me know and I'll get it ordered for you. And I went on back there and ordered it. And hey, I didn't care whether it was the back door or the front door, I was hungry. <laughs> you know, I wanted something to eat. And so it, we went through, it, it, it was kind of sad. Uh, have a concert in the daytime the blacks came at night it was the white in the southern states they didn't allow that many blacks to congregate at that 
late at night, okay? Because they didn't know what they were going to do, okay? But it, it wasn't too good, believe me. It was sad times. But it all changed, and I'm so happy it's changed, okay? But during that time, it, it was kind of rough. It was kind of rough. You know, but that, when I was growing up, I was a, we, all, we had black schools in, a, in Oklahoma, and they had white schools. When I moved to California, I moved to, we came to California in the, in the late 30s and the 40s when the Dust Bowl, when all that, oh man, Oklahoma was in bad shape, okay? And no food, no work, no nothing. And my uncles had already came to California and they sent for my mother and us. And it was kind of rough. You know, but when I came to California, it was it was nicer. Everything, all the schools were mixed. You know, it was you know the segregation wasn't inside of the city of, of San Francisco and Oakland and all of them. Oh, if you went about 50 miles, 100 miles out of the city, you might have run into some of it. But in the city, we all went to the same schools, and it was good. It was great. You know, so I didn't really, I I really didn't feel nothing about it because, like I said, growing up, and when I was a kid in Oklahoma, me and a couple of white friends, <laughs> we'd go up in the hills and play together. Mom and dad, their dad didn't know because we was up there in the hills and, you know, but we all got along, we all had fun, <laughs> okay. They went their separate way, I went mine, and we'd meet up there sometime, you know. So I never really felt it, but, you know, until I went in, I went in the service. Let me tell you something, my friend. I was stationed in San Antonio. That's where I did my basic. Then I went to Maxwell, Field in Alabama. Lord, have mercy, Jesus. That <laughs> was before Martin ever thought about Martin. He wasn't even. I don't know if he was born or not, but it was in 1940, 45, 46. Korean War was still going on, and uh, that's when, that's when I found out about presidents in Montgomery, Alabama. Ooh, Lord have mercy, <laughs> okay? Base was segregated then. Blacks had their barracks, the whites had their barracks, okay? We didn't, you know, it, it was no, it wasn't no, we wasn't no togetherness in the armed service at that time. That all happened you get in around 1948 or 47, 48, you know, and they don't even talk about the man anymore. That's Truman, President Truman. And if you notice, they don't even mention his name. He's the one that integrated the armed service. And, and boy, let me tell you, them Southern white folks, whoo, they wanted to kill him. Do you hear me? You're gonna have my, you gonna have my kids sleeping in the barracks with black boys? No, -uh. they wanted to kill him. But you don't they don't mention his name today. You know, you don't hear him talk about Truman. Talk about every president, but they don't talk about Truman. And I can remember I was sitting on Okinawa. Let me tell you, it was, and I we were all around the radio that day because he was gonna speak, and he said, as of today, the armed service. It's no longer segregated. He said, we, we can't keep winning these wars separate. That's what he said. 
you know, we all looked at it, and I, you know, <laughs> and at that time I was playing football. Ooh, I was great. I was a great wide receiver, man. Let me tell you something. And uh, I had a squad in the mil a military, okay. And uh, we went out of town to play. We went to Manila to play football. We won the championship to fifth half for us. I was in. We won the championship three years in a row. And I was in Manila. When I got back to the base, well. This boy from, white boy from Mississippi was in my squad, and he, oh, he was mean. He didn't know me, because they had put him in there before. And what happened is, well, he was right and I was wrong. I went to the movie that night when we got back, and he was on guard duty, and he wouldn't let me in the movie because I didn't have a towel. <laughs> and in those days when you left to go downtown to the base, you had to dress. And he wouldn't let me in, man. I'm going to tell you this. He was right. So I didn't fight him. I didn't question him. I went and borrowed a child. But the next morning, he was in my squad. Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> and I put him out there on a gate. We called it the Dead Man's Gate. Way out there on Okinawa. <laughs> I put him out there and I left him. <laughs> <laughs> Fix you, but let me in that movie because I didn't have a towel. But I feel sorry. Because <laughs> <And I laughs> there wasn't nothing out there at night but rats. <laughs> I mean, some of the guys used to take their guns, and the only way to keep alive was to shoot rats. <laughs> you know? I feel sorry for him, and I went out there and got him. You know? And then, you know, but that boy now wind up being the best friends. Hmm. We went after, you know. For a few, we was over there for about a year or so together, and we wound up being best friends. I'm gonna tell you something. When we got on our way back to the United States from Okinawa, this boy called his parents and told them, he said, I'm not coming home. They were in Mississippi. He said, because you taught me wrong. We had become great friends then, okay? And uh, he didn't go home. When we got to San Francisco, he stayed there, married in San Francisco. He would not go home. He said, if you want to see me, you got to come out here. Okay, because I got a black friend, and I can't bring him down. <laughs> you know, oh. but that's what, <laughs> it was lovely, man. You know, and that's when I got into music. <laughs> I loved it. I love music, man. There's nothing like music. So Preston, before we move on from Preston, because that was a great clip, um, Dan mentioned his real passion for music and how he is a really good storyteller and I think I kind of fell in love with Preston Epps a little bit watching his clip because of one specific story he told where he was talking about how he much later on in his life someone was writing a book about him and talked about how he learned to play I don't know if it was the bongos or what but uh, while he was in the military service over in Okinawa like oh he was in Okinawa that's where he learned to play and Preston goes I, w I didn't learn to play when I was in Okinawa I was too busy dodging bullets and I just thought that was so funny <laughs> like just the way the delivery like oh gosh so but he said he never corrected the author he just let him say what they wanted to say and everything but I was like oh that's the guy I want to meet that's the guy I want to go have a cup of coffee with or yeah, something so no doubt um yeah that's exactly how I feel about the next guy too we're, we're going to talk about Specs Powell now um, and and 
Preston and Specs had a lot in common, as a matter of fact. You know, they were both uh, very uh, early pioneers of um, playing music in, in, in orchestras where all of their colleagues were white. And uh, Specs, in fact, was one of the very first guys to be hired by a major network to play in the uh, radio and later television orchestras. Uh, he was born in 1922, uh, just to give you a time frame of his life, uh, passed away in 2009, and he played with everybody. I loved his line when I uh, interviewed him, uh, Specs. He said, I play with everybody you can name, and I thought that was a really great line. Then I looked at his credits, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right, <laughs> you have played with everybody I can name. Um, he was on 52nd Street, that very famous uh, time of the 1940s where jazz was really cutting its teeth in New York and uh, played with Billie Holiday and just tons of other people. Uh, but when he was in that orchestra on radio, he, um, he experienced something that he talks a little bit about in this clip, and I just wanted to um, uh, add my remembrances of talking to him about this the first time, which wasn't completely caught on the, uh, the interview. He told me that he took a, a lunch break uh, with the orchestra and he came back to his drum kit to see a noose lying there. And I asked him, I said, Specs, who put it there? And he said very directly, everybody. And he really meant that. He, because nobody came forward to warn him or to take it away before he saw it, to him, Everybody in that room, including the guys in the studio, the guys in the office, the ladies in the office, and all the musicians playing uh, in the orchestra, all did that. And then I asked him, I said, well, what did you do? And he said, I played my ass off. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a really great answer. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, that was Specs. Specs realized that he had a choice, right? He could get up and leave, or he could represent and do the very best he could. And that was him through and through, regardless of what challenges he had. That was his personality. So um, I really consider him a pioneer in that respect. You know, he was fighting the good fight that day. And it could not have been easy. He was clearly outnumbered, and he was clearly not welcomed. And yet, he still did what he was paid to do. And um, I think he really made a difference. You told me this story that I thought was um, very interesting about um, some of the problems you had working in the band, um, race issues. Uh, particularly, I think it was with, with the studio band. Mm -hmm. When the, when about did that occur? Was that uh, radio? 1945, again? radio. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I, I don't talk about that anymore, uh, but it happened in those days because, uh, believe it or not, uh, there were areas of New York that was worse than Mississippi in those days. And uh, oh, things like I'd go to to uh, lunch and come back, and there was a noose on my drum, you know. Uh, somebody would make sounds of a black crow. It would caw, caw, caw. Yeah. They thought that was funny, and at first I didn't know what it was because I never saw a black crow. But when I found out what it was, I just wanted to round out some heads. But I just, 
I've lived through that one too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, as you know, we were introduced uh, when Red told me that you live down here, and Red yes. was a close friend of mine in his later years. Yes. And my first introduction to you, of course, was when I was a kid listening to your records. But after yeah. that, when Red was talking, he mentioned some of these stories and how your dignity mm -hmm. remained solid no matter what. And I, yes. I was always very impressed about that part of your character. Mm -hmm. And then I heard you swing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. It's a good combination, Specs. Yes, well, <laughs> I guess to be a professional, you have to do what you have to do. And... Uh, I became a pretty good master at it. Everything was not nice, but a lot of those people who did those things, you know, I could buy and sell them. And uh, so I try to just keep going. And I made a lot of friends along the way, a lot more friends than enemies in this business. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm pleased with that. You mention my name anywhere, and there's very few people that's going to say something ugly about it. I've never once heard that. Yeah. And you've helped an awful lot of people along the way, too. I, I've tried, yeah. yes. Good. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. I, enjoy I don't know coming. if I missed anything major. I, I, <laughs> I don't know, but in any case, if any time you would want me to talk with you again, it's a pleasure, and it's been a pleasure knowing you. And I'm sorry that Red isn't around to, uh, uh, to fill us all in and remind us of a lot of things. But the time that I spent with him was joyous. I enjoyed him tremendously, and, and it's a pleasure knowing you too, Danny. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good. Thanks. I just, I think, Dan, hearing that story from your perspective and then hearing it from Spex's own perspective as well is, that's just, that blows my mind. Like, his response, I guess, is what really blows my mind. I mean, you hear, unfortunately, you hear about all these terrible, hateful, awful acts that occurred, and to people, to good people, for no reason other than the way they look or the way they, you know, the color of their skin or something like that. And uh, it's hard to comprehend because I think a lot of people never experience something like that in their life or are a part of that or see it, witness it. Um, but his reaction to just take it in, understand what they're telling him, essentially, in not so many words, and then showing them that <laughs> he's better than all of them, quite frankly. I just, that's so admirable. Hmm. Absolutely. So here we gonna hear, who are we going to hear from next, Mike? Next, we are going to hear from a man named Joe Wilder. What can you tell us about him, Dan? <laughs> that was very radio-esque. Yes, that was. Like, that I'm, I'm trying. Nice. I'm trying. Like game like show hosty and hey, radio show slash podcast. <laughs> we can do that. Well, Joe was a, a great trumpet player in the early days of jazz. He was born in 1922 and uh, passed away in 2014 and had a great career. He played a lot on Broadway and did a lot of traveling shows uh, in the orchestra pits, as well as recording in jazz um, on recordings and so on. So um, a great career. And I love the, uh, the clip that Elizabeth found from his uh, NAM Oral History interview. Yeah, so specifically he's going to be talking about his experience working on uh, the famous Broadway show Guys and Dolls, and then just kind of Broadway in general, and how being um, one of the few African Americans in that industry, and that's part of the industry during during that time. It's really captivating, so listen up. Now you mentioned the guy who did the original Guys and Dolls. You, you were actually working with him on that, weren't you? Oh, I was in that band. There were three black musicians in that orchestra. Uh, Benny, Benny Morton, who was, had been with the Count Basie band, 
uh, Billy Kyle, who was a pianist, and who ended up with being Louis Armstrong's pianist with a small group, and me. There were three the of us. Yeah. He, he, right, yeah. he traveled yeah. quite a lot. That was, the first, wow. that was the first big Broadway show to hire uh, black musicians. And, and then I went out with uh, Silk Stockings, the Cole Porter show, and, and Frank Lesser's Most Happy Fella. And this was the first time they had a black uh, musician playing a principal chair with a Broadway show that was not a black show. And this was the first, and I was the only African-American musician in the orchestra, and I played principal trumpet with those two shows. So, and there again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking about how conditions must have been for, for Specs when he went to CBS or something. Well, they were similar in a way for me because we're going to different cities and some of these people resented the fact that they had an African-American musician playing in the orchestra, but not the people with whom I was working, nor the producers and the stars of Silk Stockings were, Donna Michi and Hildegard Kneff, the German actress, and the other people, some people from the from San Francisco Opera Company. Uh, oh, just all kinds of people. They were, they were just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the same thing with the most happy fella, the same thing. The cast, I was with the cast and with the road company, and, and nobody was going to let anything unpleasant happen to me, you know. And you just love these people, you know. They were just unbelievable, unbelievable. Producers, we rehearsed in Philadelphia, at, a, at the Lulu Temple, which is across from the Schubert, Schubert Theater on Broad Street, where we were going to open with Silk Stockings and with Most Happy Fella. And the people who, we used that hall for all the rehearsals leading up to the opening night. And they sent a letter of introduction and an invitation to the whole road company. And they said, uh, everybody was invited, but no Negroes, as they were calling blacks at that time, no Negroes or Japanese. And the Japanese, the head electrician who's doing all the lighting with it for the show was Japanese. And there was a black lady who was one of the wardrobe mistresses and, and me. And this is what they specifically said in the note. And the producer said, anybody, am I on? No, not yet. Said anybody that goes to that party is fired. And nobody went. Really? Nobody went. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And it happened, it happened a couple of times. It happened in Boston, but it made a big difference. It made a big difference. And you can't help but, you know, just, you just admire and love people like that uh, because they, these are things they could just as easily have said, well, why don't we get another trumpet player and we won't have this problem, you know? And, and, and to his credit, one of the things that I always remember, and, I, and I'm sorry, I never got, I, I'm very shy about going to the people who are running these things, you know, and bothering them. Because a lot of times people think you're, you're trying to sugar them up or you're trying to gain something by doing it. And, and it isn't that, I, that I, I don't trust people or anything. I, I've always been shy about that. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm gregarious otherwise, I guess. But I just don't like to bother people with, like, well, I'm going to rub up to you until I get something out of you. So I never bothered. And I'm sorry that I didn't get to know Cole Porter intimately because he was always there when we were rehearsing and so forth and he'd say hello to the musicians but that was that would be it and they asked him if he had any objection to having a black musician playing principal principal chair with his his production and he's asked he said can the man play my music and they said yes he can he said that's all that matters you can't get a nicer compliment than that from somebody of that stature you know and and it's not it's it isn't something that a lot of people know, but it's something that a lot of people should know because uh, when you know when you get to the point where you're running into problems and you begin hating people, they, whether it's black or white or whatever because of the color, then when you know that there are people who are not like the people that are causing you a problem, 
it makes it a lot easier. You know, you know how to handle it That's when you run into it. Especially it? somebody of his stature. Yeah, yeah. It's, it makes a big difference. I bet. Makes a big difference. So Joe wrapped up kind of our first segment talking about firsthand experiences that uh, people experienced during the civil rights movement and that kind of era right before the push for equality. And so we're going to move on to a different topic. We're going to be kind of transitioning to to talking about uh, the merging of the musicians' unions, which is a really interesting and captivating story. And I had, after I listened to our uh, next two clips, I had quite a few questions that I took to Dan, and he answered almost all of them, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) Tried to, I'm sure. He tried to. Um, And so I'm still learning, and which is always interesting because there's, you know, I, my brain works a little bit differently and I get fixated on something and I just can't stop. So, um, but the point being is that the union at the time, the musicians union took in the same amount of fees, no matter what race you were, but yet if you were African American, you couldn't vote. You couldn't go to certain meetings. You couldn't. You weren't even incorporated in many of the union books. And the books that you were incorporated in, and that was usually the larger cities like Los Angeles and New York, Chicago. There was a separate section for African Americans uh, in the back of the book. So um, that that was a completely different time and completely unfair. And people like Clara Bryant and uh, Buddy Collette stepped up and said, we've got to do something about this. So to, to, to break it down very simply, uh, it wasn't so much that if you were white or if you were black, you were getting paid different rates. It was essentially the opportunities would be different because if people wanted a black musician, they had to work a little bit harder, I guess, to find like the exposure wasn't there. Is that what you'd say? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so as Dan mentioned, we're going to hear from Buddy Collette, who you heard from earlier, as well as Clara Bryant, who you heard from earlier. And they're going to both be talking about the merger of the unions, and um, they don't really call them that. It's an amalgamation, amalgamate of the unions. So let's hear from them. You know, we thought the head of it would say, hey, we should do this. And he said, well, I don't see why I should make a change that's been working this way. I said, but that's not the point. But then he also changed when he got to be... You know, 20 years after it happened, so 53, 73 or whatever, he came out an old guy then, he, you know, might have been 60 or 70 at first, now he's about 80 or 90, you know, and he looked like the godfather, so he came out, he said, well, who started this thing, you know, he said, about five or six of us, he said, well, it was a good idea, because then the other, other unions that did it, local six in San Francisco, a lot of unions were segregated, now New York was always, anybody you could sign up, you know. But in L.A., if you were black, you couldn't go to the white union. You had to go to the black union. So they were controlling you. But finally, he admitted, but that was years after it was working. He said, well, a lot of unions followed what you all had done. So he had us all to lunch at the Beverly Hilton or somewhere like that, made his big speech and said it was a good idea. Now, he did done a real about face on it. He just felt in the beginning, why do it? You don't have to do it. It's working on its own. But we said, no, it's not working. It's working for you but it's not working for the musicians. It doesn't show the world that we're together here. So it was, it was a good thing, and it was before the Brown versus the Board of Education. So nobody made us do it. We didn't have to do it. It was just something we wanted to do. That made it work even better when you can catch and say, hey, why don't we just do it? Why are we keeping it this way? Only because we're set up this way. If it's wrong, let's change it. And that was the idea. And so we learned a lot by doing that. And as you can see now, things have gone a long way since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd go into a club, and if you were a mixed group, 
And when Red Norbert had Mingus in his band with Tal Farlow, they played a, a club on La Cienega. And Jerry Field and I, we were coming from this show, and we had a mixed We had a white young lady and a black young lady with us, and myself and Jerry and all. And we sat down there as Mingus and, and Tal and, and Red Norville. And the, all of a sudden, the club, that's L.A. at the time, nobody realized. It wasn't the South, but the guy came and says, we can't serve this table because it was a mixed group there. They were in that frame of mind, something's wrong with this table. Everybody should either be the same. You know, I don't know what their thinking was, and Jerry got so upset because he had hired me. He said, what do you mean you can't say? He said, we have to sue you then. He said, why don't you sue the other clubs that are doing this? I said, doing what? You know, it was, it was just one of those things. We, sometime I'd go into a club with the whole band, and it would be fine. We'd be all guys. But once it got to be ladies and things again, it was that strange. So, you know, you don't see that now. There would be times when they'd be watching you, and the other people couldn't even eat because they'd see this mixed group. Who can they be that they're running together? We figured there's got to be a communist-inspired kind of thing. And that was when that period of the 40s was so rough. That had to be somebody that set that up. You couldn't just find friends that you liked that were different. But uh, it was a great experience, you know, <laughs> to see how the thoughts were going at the time. Well, you saw a lot of changes when it came to that, didn't you? Oh, did I? Yeah. But I was right there from the beginning, and I wrote it all the way, and I met some wonderful friends, you know, that didn't think, you know, it would work out so well, but it did. Because then you find the real people there. It's not about what you learned when you grew up. You know, that could be all wrong, because that was controlled by a lot of people, and still is in a way, but we, we knocked down those walls and came away smiling. Because, you know, when something's phony and you prove it to be phony, what, so, like the war of the, what's it, what's it, McCoy's and somebody, uh, what's it, Austin's and McCoy's, you know, the, the war they had fought for years, and somebody said, what are you guys fighting about? I said, we don't even know, we're just fighting because that's what we always do. You know, you're sort of living something, a lie. Well, somebody might have slapped somebody thousand years ago or something, and all of a sudden we just had to keep fighting because we never liked each other. It was like a false thing, and uh, we found out that the main thing was us all to have equal learning and studies and equal money, equal housing, whatever, and schooling and all that. So it came to light, proved this point that, you know, you're only as big as you think you are, and we, we, we pulled it off. So many times people would say, wow, there's a guy that works on the Tonight Show, his name is Smitty, uh, what is this? Marvin Smitty Smith. He said, man, you made it possible for a lot of us guys to work. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I just tried to do what I wanted to do at the time to make sure it would be a home for musicians to work. And if they were qualified, you should get hired. You know, so it was just the principle of the thing. But my grandmother, again, was all into that, you know. You will do this, you will do that. She said, you can do it if you want to, and you do it in the right way. But it was a very exciting life. That was one reason I didn't go to, I had all the offers to go to New York. So when, I was one, when I was one of the best players out here too, Mingus went, uh, Dexter went, you know, the Daz guys went, Chico stayed there, and they wanted me to come. I went there in 63 to conduct Fella Fitzgerald, Basin Street East, and I did that. All the offers, why don't you just stay here? We got things for you. I said, I gotta go back. There's too much work to do in LA. It's not a jazz town yet. We'll make it a jazz town, you know. So that was the story. It always kept me going, other than just come back to, you know, to play my horn. It was bigger than that in the family too, you know. There was a togetherness 
in our race at that time, but we don't have it anymore. We don't, we don't share ideas, and we get. I'm getting away from what you wanted to talk about, but it's something I, I like to talk about and let people know that um, as a, a race, we have become very separated. You know, because like when they amalgamated the two unions, I wasn't for that. And Buddy Collette kind of got upset with me. But see, they were trying to get into the union for, amalgamate the two unions for two different reasons. They wanted to be, to play in the studios and make the same money that the white boys were making when they played them. At first, they started letting them in, but they weren't paying the same, they didn't get the same money. And uh, it was just, it's a lot of things that are involved that people don't know about what happened when we, when we amalgamated the two unions. Um, so why were you against it? I was against it because I knew what they were doing. I knew why they would let us in. You know, they let us in, but they wouldn't, wouldn't pay us the same money because we weren't getting the same money without being amalgamated. So, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. But Buddy Collette and them, they, you know, they knew that they would be in, and they didn't care whether anybody else got in. And I've told Buddy that, you know. He said, Clara told me that. But uh, that's the way they were. And there wasn't anything I could do about it. But I knew what was going on. The same way when, when we, uh, what's the little short saxophone player's name? Art, uh, oh boy. he was the first one. He played in most of the clubs on Central Avenue and no other white boy was playing. Art was a lame. A short alto player, mostly. Hmm. But uh, he would be the only one going to the jam sessions and getting up there playing because the 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 guys trusted him. I don't know why. I, you know, I wasn't really going around him that much to find out at the time. But uh, it's a it's been a long, but I, it's been a long, hard um, struggle. But I'm putting all of it in my book. You know, things that haven't been told, haven't been said. Um, it has to be brought out because the kids need to know from whence they came. That's right. You know, didn't, nobody just opened the door and said, come on in. They had to open the door and work their way in. And uh, that's why when, I, when they have jam sessions, like the jam sessions are winning. In Glendale, we had one place that we jammed with Bumps Myers and mm. Woody Woodman and, and all those guys. I would go, I played, and they hired, they had to hire me because I was there, you know. I'd find a way to get over to Glendale and, and play with them. I was just determined that I was going to be a, a musician, not just a female musician. I wanted to be a musician where they would accept me for what I was doing, not because I was a female and they, you know, and there would be no couch scenes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Everybody would tell me they don't expect to go to bed with you. <laughs>
<laughs> but I thought that was so funny, you know. It 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 it's a lot that's involved with the amalgamation of the two unions that they don't talk about. Yeah, that was a nice little segment there that Elizabeth put together. Thank you for doing that. Clara Bryant and Buddy Collette talking about the changes that needed to have happened uh, within the musicians' union during the civil rights movement uh, and an impact that continues to be beneficial. Those two were pioneers for sure. And I, I would like to also mention just a little bit more about Buddy Collette, who was a fantastic flute player. He played sax and clarinet. He was on zillions of records as a studio musician and he traveled with quite a lot of bands uh, during his career in the 1950s as well Uh, but a little known fact we were talking about Spex Powell being the first to be hired uh, uh, African-American to play with the Ed Sullivan show and uh, on certain um, network radio programs Um, but Buddy Collette was actually the first African-American to play on a radio show in 1950 49 called You Bet Your Life, which was sort of a comedy slash game show that was hosted by Groucho Marx that became so famous that it moved on to television in the 50s and Buddy moved along with it and uh, went on to television. And one of the stories goes is that uh, one of the producers was not uh, too happy about the fact that this African-American was going to be on television and Groucho apparently stuck up for Buddy Collette and said he's been with me from the beginning and he's going to continue to be a part of this show. So it's really neat that people like him stepped up to help uh, when things were clearly not uh, not right. So moving forward uh, into our next section of this podcast, uh, we're going to be hearing from some folk musicians about music during the civil rights movement. Um, and among these musicians, uh, the first we're going to hear from is Tom Paxton. And I was actually able to sit in on that interview with Dan when we interviewed Tom Paxton. And he just told some great stories and some very inspirational um, things about the civil rights movement. What do you think, Dan? Absolutely. Well, a passionate guy, right? I mean, uh, he was born in Chicago, uh, 1937, because he just had a big birthday. Um, And... Uh, He moved to Oklahoma when he was about 11 and really got into the roots of music there. I really grew up in sort of um, Americana music of that area and uh, fell in love with people like uh, Burl Ives, the great folk singer. And then he started writing, and some of the songs that he wrote became very popular for a number of other artists. Uh, Probably the most famous is The Marvelous Toy that uh, uh, is kind of a tongue-in-cheek song that Peter Paul and Mary recorded to great success. And another, one of my all-time favorite songs, actually, was uh, written by Tom Paxton called uh, The Last Thing on My Mind. Uh, He recorded it along with John Denver. I think my favorite recording is Jose Feliciano, as a matter of fact. A great, great song that's uh, very adaptable to a lot of different styles. Um, So he has a real way with words and, and with music, and he was right there at the center of the civil rights movement. He realized early on in his career that uh, his friends who were African-American were not being treated fairly, and he wanted to jump on board with this concept of uh, playing music to crowds to bring awareness to uh, the civil rights movement, and I think that's exactly what he did. So here's Tom talking about music and the civil rights movement. Can you conceive of the civil rights movement without music? 
wouldn't have happened. They, they sang in the face of police dogs. It's how they, it's how they faced police dogs was with singing. It's how they, it's how they endured jail by singing to one another. Um, my wife Midge and I went down in, I guess it was 64, to a weekend in Atlanta at Gammon Theological Cemetery, there, a seminary, excuse me. Um, there was a, a, a music weekend. Song leaders from, from out, throughout the civil rights movement met at Gammon for a weekend uh, to exchange songs and, 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 and spirit and uh, nobody stopped singing the whole weekend. It was, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, but can you imagine a civil rights movement without We Shall Overcome? Uh, so the, the question of whether music changes the world is to me a very uninteresting question. Billy Bragg, I just heard Billy Bragg at Folk Alliance uh, convention in, in, in Kansas City, and he said something quite wonderful. He said, it's not, it, it's not the artists who change the world. It's the audience. It's the listeners. They hear the songs and they make the changes. I thought that, that really puts it in a perspective. Uh, and it also takes a hell of a load off our backs. I mean, I, I don't want the, the, you know, the idea of I have to change the world with my songs, uh, but I don't mind being part of, of a movement. Hmm. What other memories do you have of the civil rights movement as far as music? I remember the first time I heard Lynn Chandler sing, what was the song he sang? Uh, it was one of the songs that became anthemic. And I was just in awe. I said, that is a, that is a strong song. I'm embarrassed that I can't call it right back right now. But those were strong songs. Uh, they had to be. Um, uh, ain't going to let nobody turn me round, turn me round. Uh, um, when you sing that song uh, and you're sitting in a prison cell, you're not just whistling Dixie. You're singing, you're singing something that really matters to you. And, and the song expresses it perfectly. I think that was a great clip. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention before we moved forward onto our next interviewee is that that interview with Tom took place earlier in 2017, back in March, and it actually occurred here at the NAM offices prior to a concert downstairs in the Museum of Making Music that he put on. So one of the hidden gems here in Carlsbad is the concert listings here that occur here at our offices and at the museum. So if you're ever in the area, make sure you check their lineup because it's always someone fascinating and it's happening all the time. 
So definitely do that. Jump on their website. I think a cool thing about those concerts, too, is how small the room is. Oh, it's so intimate. It probably seats about maybe 150 at the most. If that. And and it's so there's not a bad seat in the house. So you can see someone like Tom Paxton and just be right next to him while he's playing and singing. It's It's a great, they do a great job down there. So if you have the opportunity, it's not very expensive in comparison to this, some of these big venues and stuff like that. And it's worth it to make the trip. So who are we, who are we going to hear from next? Looks like next up we have Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, my mom's, one of my mom's favorite I bands. I have not heard the end of that, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so Peter got together with Paul and Mary in 1961, and they had a string of hits, uh, both uh, songs that were written by Peter and Paul, along with this uh sort of unknown guy named Bob Dylan who was coming up at the time. Maybe you heard of him now. Who? Just just who? a guy. Who? Some Bob guy. D- Dylan? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I never heard of him. <laughs> so they had a, an amazing career. Uh, they really helped along with the Kingston Trio and a couple of other bands really um, rejuvenate the whole folk movement of the 1960s. And along with it was there, as Peter told us, um, responsibility as musicians to bring awareness to causes that uh, needed um, forefront attention, particularly in the political realm. So they did lots of marches on Washington and a a lot of political rallies and so on. Uh, But for causes like the Civil Rights Movement and Vietnam War and you name it, Peter Yarrow was there and wrote a song about it. Um, By the way, one of my favorite little factoids um, is that during the middle of this interview, the clip of which is coming up, um, he sort of broke stride. You you heard the interview. <laughs> he broke stride to make sure it was very clear that his 1962 hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary, Puff the Magic Dragon, had nothing to do with marijuana. <laughs> I just thought that was bad. And oh, by the way, it has nothing to do with what you think it does. He has to say that in every, every, every inter- appearance every he ever inter- does. I like, feel bad for him. <laughs> he's checking out at the grocery store. He's like, just so you let you know, those, those are my bananas. And Puff the Magic Dragon had nothing to do with marijuana. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love this guy. He's fantastic. Did he say what it had to do with them? I mean, no. he just, just not, not that, <laughs> it was something a, else. It was just a kid's song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought the same thing too until I turned about 17. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why he wants to clarify. So in the uh, segments that we have put together, he's really talking about the impact that he saw music have uh, within the civil rights movement. Well, John Lewis said it best. John Lewis is a member of Congress, for those of you who are uh, not clocking it immediately. I mean, these days we know who the uh, 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 assistant attorney general is, you know. You know, those days we didn't have a clue. Uh, But um, John Lewis is a member of the Congress who actually was uh, clubbed and went into a coma on Bloody Sunday when they were crossing the, the bridge. Peter, Paul, and Mary sang in Montgomery. Uh, they were part of the, I did it again, Selma Montgomery March. Uh, he said, and this was said at the 50th anniversary of the Selma Montgomery March, where I performed, and I was the only performer from the first march that was performing that day. I was invited by Harry Belafonte to come 
It was a three and a half hour performance the day after President Obama was there. And the only person who spoke there was John Lewis, member of Congress. He said, the civil rights movement without music would have been a bird without wings. The civil rights movement um, incorporated music in a very fundamental way. For instance, when the freedom, um, uh, when the not the freedom riders, when the 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 front of the bus of protesters who came down from the north got on the bus to go to Alabama, Mississippi. They would ride in the front of the bus because there were no restrictions in terms of doing so, either nationally or statewide. But they hit Alabama or Mississippi. They were yanked off the bus, beaten, uh, uh, you know, thrown into jail, and they got there. And if you see eyes on the prize, you'll hear this. And they went, and 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 the jailer said, there's something wrong here. You know, after a day or two, and they're waiting for whatever is going to happen, they're happy. They shouldn't be happy. They should be cowed. They should be defeated. They should be nursing their wounds, their broken arm, their whatever, from the beatings and everything. No. They're so happy, they're singing. Well, tell them they can't sing. So they went in and said, you can't sing. And they said, we're singing. They said, we'll take away your mattresses and you'll sleep on cold steel. We're singing. They didn't sing to entertain each other. I don't sing to entertain people. I mean, it can be entertaining. I take my cue from that era. We have to stand together and we have to sing. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not. Mexicans are Americans too. We shall not be moved, whatever. We have to do it. And music, and when we're singing together, we're saying, hey, we're saying this. We're saying, you know, uh, you know, if I had a hammer or, you know, uh, you know, when will we ever learn for where have all the flowers gone that we, if we can do this, if we can come together, we can preserve this nation's unanimity of spirit. If we are divided, we'll be divided in ways that can make us vulnerable, as was Germany and Italy before the war, with hatred of immigrants. Mexicans. You, the, what you look at the, called the Trump effect, look at the southern part of the Poverty Law Center and you see kids who used to be able to get along now hating each other. Yeah, the children are listening and watching. And we better realize that the trauma that is coming to these kids from seeing this vitriol. And we whether we're, you know, uh, Democrats or lefties like, like me, you know, uh, or Republicans, beware because those kids are listening.
And if we can't embrace each other, we are putting this nation it's the, and the very constructs of democracy in jeopardy. I sing to lock hearts and create courage and belief. That was part of giving them the strength to go forward. And for those of us who sang at the marches, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, when people sang, if I had a hammer and blowing in the wind at the uh, March on Washington in 1963, they were not listening to a performance, they were singing with us. And we were listening to them and singing with them. So that moment was transformational for us. And I remember, I think, that that was perhaps the most important moment of our togetherness in our entire almost 50 years of performance. And we sang at innumerable gatherings over the years, whether it was for civil rights, to end the war in Vietnam, anti-apartheid, women's movement, climate, you name it. There were always things and there always will be things to sing for. Another important thing to note before we move on, um, Peter Yarrow and Tom Paxton both bring up a very big name in both of their interviews, and that is Pete Seeger, a very iconic musician uh, during the folk movement. And we actually do have an interview with him. Um, his web clip is posted up on our website, and he's not going to be featured in this podcast today, but it is definitely worth a watch. So, Elizabeth, if somebody wanted to watch that interview, where would they go? You know, I was hoping to ask you that, but <laughs> since you asked me, they would go to... <clears throat> www.nam.org slash library. That was good. <laughs> that was a good yeah, radio. Yeah, I good. channeled my PBS that like was nice. reading Rainbow NPR. Voice. Like <laughs> LeVar Burton. Like, mm. <laughs> that was my inspiration for that. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so we have uh, one more segment clip for this kind of block before we start to wrap up this, this episode. And that's we're going to hear back from Billy Taylor again. Anybody Anybody want to introduce that? You guys want me to do it? Yeah, you go ahead. Go oh, for okay. it. All right, I'm on a roll. Mm, you are. Look out. So Billy is going to be talking about writing and uh, his writing and as well as dead... He's, oh, let's see if I can put it out here now. Man, the pressure's on. Billy's going to be talking about writing songs and dedicating some of them to Martin Luther King Jr. and the March on Washington. And he tells a great story in this clip about his experiences working very closely with Martin Luther King Jr., and some incidents that happen while they are performing these concerts to get people kind of jazzed up and raise money for the protests and the sit-ins and the marches and everything like that. Um, this is probably one of my favorite stories from this podcast. So make sure you, you know, turn it up a little bit louder in your car, slow down your treadmill a little bit if you're at the gym. I don't know what else you, what else anyone does when they listen to podcasts. I usually just zone out, so maybe actually pay attention for this part. <laughs> well, I hope you're paying attention during all of our podcasts. Nice. Stop working so hard if you're at work right now. Wake up. <laughs> it's time to wake up. <laughs> so let's hear from Billy Taylor and his experiences uh, with working closely with Martin Luther King Jr. When I wrote uh, the, 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 the piece dedicated to Martin Luther King, uh, I... I based uh, many of the things that I did on things I had heard him say in, uh, uh, in private conversations as opposed to his speech. Because 
to me, he had as much to say uh, in a conversation like this uh, that was, you know, I would take him to heart uh, as, as anyone I, I ever met. He was, a, he was a unique human being, you know, and it wasn't pretentious or anything. It was just the way he was, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, I remember uh, we, were doing, we were getting ready for the uh, March on Washington, and uh, we did, a lot of us went to uh, Birmingham to, to do a concert to raise money for, for that march. And uh, uh, they wouldn't give us the, uh, uh, they had promised us the, the town hall or the whatever, you know, the big space that was for that. And they realized that after the fact that we had an integrated group. And so the people in the said, no, 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 you can't do that here. And, and so uh, uh, we used uh, um, a, a local college. We got on 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 campus of a, a local college, and had a ma people into town uh, put put up a make makeshift bandstand. Now we had an all star show. I mean, with the the Supremes, with the uh, uh, I mean, it was it just just name them. They were there, you know, because they were uh, there to to ra help raise this this money, and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, the whole idea of uh, doing this, this thing. Uh, people came from all, it was, it was one of the, they must have had about uh, uh, a couple of thousand people there at least, you know, I mean, just quickly, bam, just like, uh, and, and, and you know, by word, by word of mouth, man, you got all of these great people in town now, you know? <laughs> and so, to make a long story short, we were on this, uh, make, at this makeshift uh, stage, uh, on, in the middle of a, uh, a ball park, and uh, we got 1,800 people or 2,000 people or whatever uh, out there. Uh, I'm doing, uh, in addition to uh, working with things there, I was actually, uh, I came down uh, um, because I could come down uh, for WNEW and, 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 and use that, come back, uh, put it on tape and, and, and bring it back. So. I, I, I got my little tape recorder, and and uh, I uh, am out watching these these these, these wild, wild numbers of people. All these people come, you know, uh, coming in, in to see us, and uh, I walk up to a guy, and you know he looked like a good old boy, you know, and so I, and I said, well, you know, this is he's out of out of play. I mean, <laughs> so so I, I, I walk up to him and said, uh, I beg your pardon, sir. Uh, uh, How'd you happen to come to, to see this group? He looked like, he looked at me as like, like I was crazy. See, I came to see here Ray Charles, you know? <laughs> so stupid, I mean, what, <laughs> what do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> and, and, and so the, the, uh, the highlight of, of that particular uh, uh, day was we had all of these people uh, and all night long, when, when, when it, it started before dark, but uh, as it got dark, people kept cro crowding up closer to, to see everybody, you know, and they, and they say, oh man, that's, oh, oh, oh yeah, that's Joe, Joe Lock Lewis. You know, they're trying to get you know, all of the people, to get a better look at many people. So as a result, uh, at one point, uh, uh, the, the, the stage collapsed. And, and, and so we're in, we're in, now we're in total darkness. 
and this is Bull Connor territory, and 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 you know you don't know whether the the pres the, the, the cops are going to run us all out of town or, or whatever, you know. But so we're in, we're in dock. Dr. King, who was sitting right, there, I had uh, uh, just introduced the, uh, uh, Johnny, um, oh my, Mathis, and and. Uh, um, uh, he was sharp, man, looking good, and all the ladies are looking, and everything. And he he comes on, and he's just about to he just started, and the whole thing comes down. We're in total darkness. Doctor King walks up uh, to the says, "Quiet a minute," you know, and and he says, "Don't worry about anything. I noticed it's uh, uh, things just just happened like this, but be quiet for a moment. We'll fix it." I don't know what exactly happened, but uh, don't don't just, just keep your seats, and we'll fix it in just a minute. And he was so calm and so 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 quiet. I mean, he wasn't talking as much. Uh, he was probably talking about the same level I'm talking, maybe a little louder. But but he wanted to make sure everybody heard him. And and you know, come on, you know, we're all here together and everything. I, I mean, it was just it was just a, an unbelievable moment for me. Because uh, uh, because he bought, he, he said, hey, play something, play something, and so I I sat out and played. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free, and 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 began to, uh, you know, just 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 to say, yeah, everything's, you know, to to underscore what he had just said. Everything is under under control. Don't worry about it. You know, we we got it going, but he, but the, the, he was so calm and 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 so uh, secure. That it, it, there was no riot, no nothing, no, everything. Everybody was fine, and then you know we finished, and we, we, Johnny did what he did, and everybody, and we closed the show and, and got out of there. <laughs> but it, it, it was one of the one of the most uh, poignant moments for me because uh, to see to be with him, I was. Uh, 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 you know, I didn't travel in the in the South, and I wasn't at many of the things. But to see how he was in 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 that kind of uh, situation it was just uh, you know unbelievable. <laughs> so that was Billy Taylor, and we thought we'd end with actually one more Bill, Billy Taylor clip because it's just kind of you can't do a civil rights podcast without including a mention of Martin Luther King Jr. and unfortunately his assassination that happens uh, towards the end of the 60s. I, I should have yes. looked that up. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yeah, man. I think it was, was it 68? Yeah. yeah. Oh, look at that. Oh yeah. my gosh. You're supposed to be the history close, one. Close the encyclopedia and put it away. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, and so Dan makes a point to ask Billy during his interview his thoughts on the assassination and like his perspective and did he ever think it would have happened and I think Billy does a really excellent job of summarizing what I would assume a lot of people felt during that time. Uh, Mike and I weren't alive then? No, no definitely not. Let's make that clear. Um, <laughs> I was less than one. <laughs> so Dan doesn't have any recollection. <laughs> but he was there. But he was there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was on the planet. He was on planet Earth. Um, Thank and you, Mike. <laughs> and Remind me not to do another shout out to you during this ever podcast. Again. <laughs> but uh, I think Billy does an excellent job of summarizing probably what a lot of people in his generation who remember this time period and experience this and remember hearing about the assassination on the news or the radio or whatever format uh, felt. And it's just a really good way to wrap it up, kind of summarize the feelings of the civil rights movement. Was it fathomable to you that he would be assassinated? 
I mean, was that anybody's mind that he would no, die young? No, no, I, I, I could not believe that, that anyone would do that. I mean, this, this was one of the nice, nicest human beings I ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, 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 it just didn't make any sense at all to me. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was on the air. Because I, I, was, I was not on the air, and, uh, this is later, so I'm on the air, I'm back, uh, I had been, uh, I had gone from one radio station to another. I, when I, I started my career at, WN, at WLIB, uh, I had gone to um, uh, uh, WNEW, which was a bigger station, and they hired me because they kept wondering, they said, who the heck is this guy that keeps... Uh, Bumping into uh, uh, our major disc jockey here, and uh, William B. Williams, he says, you know, you know, who is it? And so they, they did some research on me and decided that they, they, we'll, we'll just hire him. We'll just bring him on over here. And so I, I got uh, uh, William B. was a good friend, and and uh, he made sure that I, I I actually felt followed him on the radio. So I, I came on. Uh, he had like a two. Uh, um, um, Two-hour show, and I followed him with a one-hour show that that that, that, that we did, uh, which, which was a jazz show. They had had jazz before it, but not quite like it. I played the piano, played records, played you know, was, and William B was uh, terrific. And he was one of the one of the people at that at that particular uh, thing with Dr. King, and and was one of the reasons I was there, you know. Uh, but uh, when Dr. King was killed, I was I was. Uh, at, uh, had gone back to uh, the uh, WLIB, and um, that was really uh, one of the weirdest uh, times because uh, I was on the air, and, I, I, and, and the news thing came in. Guy came in and said, man, look at this. And I said, what, are you kidding? And so uh, Harry uh, um, Novick, who was the uh, uh, owner of WLIB in, in, in those days, called the, the FCC and said, look, I'm gonna break the, the, the law. He said, we are a daylight station. We're supposed to go off at the, at the uh, uh, when it gets dark. And they said, uh, if I do that tonight, we'll have a riot. And, and so, so I'm gonna break the law. You, you so sue me or do whatever you have to do. But that's the only thing I can think of that would, will, will help and keep us from having the riot. He did that. He got some uh, uh, important people, you know, ministers and other people, to get, come on air and 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 talk to people. We didn't have that 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 particular time. We didn't, we didn't have a right. So he he really foresaw that for Harlem, and that because it would have been you know, it it was bad in some respects, but 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 not anywhere near as bad as it could have been, you know. So that's this week's episode focusing on the civil rights movement and music. Uh, We want to really thank everyone for tuning in and bearing with us. It's a tough subject to talk about. And so the fact that you guys were willing to listen to it from beginning to end, I hope you're still with us, um, is really appreciated because these stories need to be told. And I think we're all very appreciative of Dan's work to make sure that they get captured and chronicled and... Yeah. Well, and also, you know, a dedication out to all those folks that uh, were in this podcast no longer with us who really had to suffer. And um, luckily they were um, 
willing to tell their stories to us so that we could document these stories and share them for generations to come. I'm very honored to play a small role in that and uh, want to thank Elizabeth again for her hard work in putting this together. I think it's a, it's a nice dedication and I'm very grateful to be a part of it. And as always, if you guys are listening and you know someone that you be- firmly believe should be in part part of our collection, to tell us their story, you know, the good and the bad along with it, please don't hesitate to email us. Um, we always want to take new topics and subjects and people into consideration. And Mike, do you could you tell us the email address they could reach us at? Oh, I sure can. That would be <laughs> library at nam. That's n a m m dot org. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Hey.